We are walking through this series. As I said, each statement is meant to help us understand who Jesus actually was, who he is, who he claims to be. Each statement, by the way, provoked his audience to reconsider some things, if not just their opinions of Jesus, certainly how they viewed every other aspect of life. And this weekend is no different. Uh, the passage we're going to be looking at, we have to understand kind of the setting of it before we dive into it. it. See, Jesus, for a number of months, perhaps for the final year, had been having controversy erupt between him and the religious leaders of his day to the point where we may have, may or may not remember a week ago, we explored an, an incident that actually led to the determination of the religious leaders that Jesus needed to be put to death. There was severe conflict that was going to lead to severe retribution on the part of the religious leaders coming towards Jesus. The disciples were well aware things were not going quite the way they had hoped or anticipated. They made their way back to Jerusalem on the final year of Jesus' ministry, perhaps, yes, even the final days of his ministry. They find themselves in a room, an upper room of a home that is left anonymous, and they celebrate Passover, and they celebrate this, this intimate dinner, this meal. And in the midst of this meal, Jesus ends up telling his disciples that he must leave them. And he is referring to, ultimately, the sacrifice he will give on the cross and eventually the resurrection that will come about. And he tells them, where I am going, you cannot go. You can't follow me there. And so this, the way you have known me, is coming to an end. That is the setting that leads us into the passage we're going to be exploring. If you open up your handout, we're told in John 14, verse 1, that Jesus says to them, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. You see, he wasn't speaking to just, if we could think of it this way, he wasn't speaking to casual observers. He wasn't speaking to a group of men who were taking his words lightly. No, these were men who were unique. Because they were men who had decided years before this incident to not just trust and believe Jesus, but they decided to put action to this faith. And many of them, all of them, walked away from their careers. They walked away from their hometowns where they had, been, they had grown up, they had been known, they had known others. They walked away from their comforts, their creature comforts, the, what they were familiar with. They walked away, some from lifelong friendships, others from even their family for a period of time. On this adventure of following Jesus, they had come to a place of thinking, He is actually, possibly, the Messiah. The one all of our ancestors have been pointing towards. He is the one. And we will go on this adventure with him. And they did. And for three years, they sacrificed. And they left what they had known behind. And they radically altered their lives. And they devoted themselves to spending every day with Jesus. Following him, hearing him, seeing what he did. And so on this night, when Jesus says to them, listen, I must leave you. And where I go, you cannot come. It was almost like, what? 
we, we gave it all up. And now you're leaving? He says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled by this. Now, believe in God. Another version would say, you believe in God. The same faith you have for God, I want you to have it for me. The same trust you have in God, I want you to transport that trust and put it on me. Which, if you think about it, that's quite a claim in itself. What person can you imagine saying, you have faith in God? Yes, yes. The same way you trust God, I want you to go ahead and trust me. Who would be actually worthy of that? We'd be like, you're crazy, all right? Let me help you. You're not God. <laughs> and yet, that's exactly what Jesus said. That's exactly what he said. And he goes on. He says in verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to, that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am going, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. You know where I'm headed, guys. You see, Jesus is actually kind of pulling an arrow and shooting it past what they are immediately seeing. They're seeing a dark cloud start to hover over them. They sense the tension. They know things aren't going that well right now. And yet, he knows the details. They do not. He knows that he's stepping into something that is going to be equal to torture. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be mocked and spit on and hit and abused. Then he's going to be taken to a mock trial. All the while, already, it was a conspiracy. All along, the judgment had already been placed. Then he's going to go through this mock trial. And he's going to be flogged. And they're going to see it. And then after that, he's going to be crucified. And Jesus knows exactly what's going before him. They do not know the details. And he's essentially telling them, listen, you're about to see this, but I want you to see ahead of it. I want you not to get caught up in this. No, I am going. You're thinking that's what's happening? No, no, no. I am going to prepare a place for you. You see, Jesus is trying to elevate their sight line to go a little farther down the horizon. He's speaking of a dwelling place, of an eternal resting place for our soul. Now, we might think of it as a house, because that's what he said. But it's more of a metaphor, of a place we can live. And he's saying, in, my, in, in, in God's presence, there's always room. There's always vacancy. All right? There are many rooms. And Paul, we know that this was more metaphoric because Paul ended up, picking, ended up picking up on the metaphor as well. And he said in 2 Corinthians, he wrote this letter to believers in Corinth. And this is what he said. He says, we know that if our earthly, earthly tent house is destroyed, we have a building from God. There's that imagery again. But he's not speaking of a house, much like this building we might think of. No, he's saying that this body we have, we should think of it like, a, like we think of tents. And what are tents known for? They're known for temporary dwelling places. Where we utilize them when we're just passing through. Nowadays, we utilize them to vacation somewhere. But we know that vacation isn't permanent. He's saying, this body is like that. And, and yet, we will have a new body. 
We will have a new body that is made not by human hands, but that it is made by God. It's made by God that is eternal in the heavens. This is Paul, right? Saying it's, it's, in, a, it's in God's realm. Not an earthly realm, but a spiritual one. And so this is, this, is, this is kind of what we're understanding. It means Jesus is actually in the middle of this dialogue with them. He sees that they're troubled. And he says to them, oh, guys, no, you're missing the point. No, no, I am going. And where I'm going, it's going to be amazing. And I'm not just leaving you. I'm not abandoning you. You're needing sacrifice in vain. No, I will come back. And I will take you to where I was, and we will once again be together. This separation is temporary, okay? But it's going to be amazing. Now, this is where Jesus is, right? He's caught up in the destination of his suffering. And you just got to leave it to the disciples to kind of just bring it right back down to earth, you know? Because it's Thomas... Uh, we may have known him as cynical Thomas, skeptical Thomas, sarcastic Thomas, um, honest Thomas. He speaks up. He says in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, actually. Um, how can we know the way? It, I get the sense, and this is just me, this is my opinion, but I get the sense that as Jesus is talking to them, he's saying, whoa, where I'm going is going to be amazing. There's so much room, and I'm coming back for you. And it's going to be just, Thomas is all the while having some of a dialogue with the disciples. Uh, guys, do you know what he's talking about? You know? And I get the sense that they're sitting there thinking, no. We, and he talks to Peter, no. John, you seem to always have insight. What about you? I don't know what he's talking about. He just checks with the whole room. And he says to them, uh, you know, Jesus is sitting there. Heaven is going to be amazing. And he's like, Lord, uh, none of us know what you're talking about. Uh, we don't know the way, actually. You're miles ahead. Can you just tell us the next step? Like, can you give us directions to get there? Just like one more step? Now, here's the thing about it. This admission, this honest, humble acknowledgement of his own ignorance unlocks what Jesus says next. Think about that. A sincere, humble question is what gives us this insight. Jesus responds, and this is when he says what he says. In this intimate group gathering, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he says a statement that makes us uncomfortable. Because he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. Um, Jesus ends up stepping into this and he says to him, Thomas, essentially, Thomas, you're looking for directions? You're looking for a roadmap? You're looking for some rules, maybe? Some regulations you're supposed to keep by? No, no, no. Thomas, listen, the way is a person. And he's right here. He's right here looking at you, talking to you. I am the way. This is what he's saying. I am the way. 
You want truth defined maybe like a dictionary or like a philosophy. No, truth is a person. Truth is a person, and I am the giver of life. That is what he's saying. See, Thomas, look at me. Look at me. I'm right here, Thomas. I'm right here. I'm right here. And you have seen me. You have seen the Father. You've seen the Father. Because you've known me, now you know the Father. Now, this is what, what, what they were not expecting. The disciples, in no way were they expecting Jesus to describe the way as a person, especially not describing it at himself, as himself. These words must have, uh, if we think of it this way, they, they must have confused them much more than enlightened them. Uh, these words actually, we, we could understand it, may have led to them being a little bit worse in their understanding than when they first began. And we know this because Philip ends up maybe out of his own courage for what Thomas had asked. He says in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, um, show us the Father and it is enough for us, okay? You know what Philip is asking for, right? And Philip is, in other words, saying, um, I'm not sure I understand everything, but I'll tell you what. If you show us God, no more questions. <laughs> okay? I don't think I totally get you, but man, if you just show us God, that'll settle us down. All right? That's Philip. And you know what Philip is tapping into? Philip is actually tapping into the universal cry of the human heart. Because all of us, if we have air in our lungs, and we come to a point of realization that some point in our lives, we desire exactly what Philip asked for. Will you just show me yourself? And it could be... Look, there are many options to find an answer to that question. But the question is asked. There are many ways, especially today, we could seek to answer that question. But we certainly, in some way or another, ask the same thing. Will you just show us? I want to know why I'm here. The one who created me. Why I exist. If I just see it, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Philip. Philip actually steps into a question that Moses hundreds of years before had asked as well. See, Moses was a man in, in their own history, in Israel's history, that is widely revered, even today, as a great man who once lived. And he was sent into Egypt to set free the people of Israel. And he was asked to lead them through the wilderness and into a promised land, a land that was promised to them. And in the midst of the wilderness, Moses discovers rather quickly that this group of people, well, it's a pretty stubborn group of people. It's really hard to lead them. They complain a lot. They are bitter and disgruntled quickly. Easily. They're very quickly offended. In fact, they're sometimes to the point where they decided they wanted to kill Moses himself. I mean, that's, that's serious. And Moses finds himself praying and asking God and saying, God, I cannot do this. It's too heavy of a burden. I can't lead your people. And then Moses does kind of what Philip does. He says, Lord, I'll tell you what. I don't think I can do this. But if you show me your glory, then I think I can. Will you show me your glory, God? This is Moses. 
Moses, by the way, is known in the Older Testament. He was described, there was no man more humble than he. And humility in the scriptures is the height of, if we could put it this way, godliness. It's a big deal. And so the scriptures are saying, there was no one better than Moses. Now, this is Moses. And you know what God said to Moses? Moses, you can't handle seeing me. I am, this is a paraphrase. I am too holy for you. You see, he's talking to Moses, okay? You know what he's implying? You're not holy enough to see me. If you see me, you will be destroyed. You will not survive. So here's what you're going to do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to hide you. I'm going to pass through. And you're going to be able to see the trail of me. This is what he told Moses. Uh, certain version says, God allowed Moses to see his backside. I just find that humorous, but <laughs> that's all Moses could see. Everything else, you're not holy enough. Now, Philip is asking the same question. And Jesus says in verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Now, Jesus didn't misunderstand the question. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Listen, Philip, it's almost as if he's incredulous. I've been with you for three years. Who else have you met that even comes close? Who? Do you not know? I'm right here. You're asking to see the Father? I'm, you see him in me. If you don't believe these words, this is what he said. If you don't believe my words, no, I'm not telling them based on my own opinion. No, I've gotten authority from the Father. And you know how you can tell I've gotten authority? Look at the evidence of my life. Look at the works. There's proof in the evidence of what I've lived and what I've done. Philip, you know, <laughs> Jesus actually steps in and claims what? He claims to be the full embodiment. This is very different. Some of us might think, well, he may have claimed to be the reflection of God. You know, and, and in a way, we all are reflections of God. We know. The scriptures say we have his imprint put on us. In Latin, it's called imago Dei. That's, that means that there is something of a divine imprint in all of us. Whether we acknowledge him or not, we are all made with something of a divine quality that's imprinted in our soul, which in itself is beautiful. But Jesus actually takes that and he goes further. He says, no, no, no. I am the embodiment. You have seen me. You've seen the Father. There's no description. There's no shadow here. I'm right here. I'm right here. <laughs> that 
That is a radical claim. If the first one unsettled us, the second one, it must have stunned them. It must have just stunned them. Wow. What do we do with that? What do we do with this? Because this is extremely important for us. Whether we're exploring or whether we have decided to follow him. He's speaking, by the way, to committed followers. And they are having a tough time. So this means an awful lot for us to consider. It's, it's good for us to explore the implications. And no matter how uncomfortable they may be, we must look at this as honestly as we can. And what we see here, and I'm just going to put this up there, is Jesus claims to do something. He claims that he is the only suitable mediator between humanity and God. That's his claim. Now, here's the deal. Everything else, that's what he said. Listen, no one comes to the Father except through me. And, and we have to acknowledge that everything else about Jesus, man, we love. We love everything else about Jesus. And it's hard to not love it. To see somebody who's so kind and gentle and loving and committed and enduring and good in every which way. But once we come to this place, we, some of us, we might find ourselves at a crossroad. Because why? We now start to see that we start to see in greater focus that Jesus is actually claiming something. He's claiming exclusivity. And that can be uncomfortable. Especially in our society, because we live in a pluralistic society. That means that there are many different philosophies of life and faiths and religions, as it should be in a nation such as ours. But it also means that we live in a place where, maybe now more than in any other point of history, we know there's more than one way to do something. We do. We know it. We live at the capital of innovation. We know it. We know there's all, there has to be a different way to get there. There's a way to disrupt this. And yet, that's what Jesus said. Now, we have to look at it honestly. We really do. We have to look at it. We can't, as hard as we can, we'd like to. That is what he said. And here's the deal. To us, this may be almost offensive. And yet, in Jesus' day, when he is speaking to the, the Jewish disciples that are sitting there, he's actually speaking in a context that made very much sense. Why? Because, let's remember, he's speaking to a group of people who have a history. And their history is unique. Their history is one in which they were held in captivity. God stepped in, sent Moses, set them free, met them at Mount Sinai. And this is at Mount Sinai, this is the history of it. Moses went there, received instructions. They were many more than 10, but the 10 have become defined as the 10 commandments. And the first commandment, there is no other God except me. That's it. That is the first point in history in which we see claim being made. There's only one God. And that was actually quite revolutionary. Now, here's the deal. At that point, God says to Moses, but I, again, am too holy for my people. There needs to be mediation. So let's make this covenant or agreement. And the way we're going to dwell together is there will be a system, a religious one, in which there will be sacrifice made so that we can dwell together. That's, that's, and, and there will only be one place where you can worship me. One place in the entire world where you can worship me. 
It was the tabernacle first, the temple second. And there are all these regulations and rules and ways of being. The culture was defined by that covenant. Ethnicity and every other nation, if they wanted to worship the God of the Jewish people, they had to convert to become one of the Jewish people. That, if you think of it, that is the context in which Jesus is speaking. And so when Jesus steps in and he says, listen, I am the mediator. I am the only way. What he is actually saying is something far different. He's actually taking their system that is quite narrow. And he's saying, on the eve of going on the cross, doing what? Making a payment for something he did not deserve on behalf of anyone who would believe in him. He's essentially saying, ethnicity, all are welcome. Nations, all are welcome. People groups, all are welcome. Language, all are welcome. Location, all over the world. All you have to do is believe. You don't need to transfer to these rules and regulations. You don't need to transfer to this entire new way of life. You don't need to do this sacrificial system. What you need to do is simply believe. You know what Jesus actually does? He took what was to begin with narrow and he widens it so far that it encompasses anyone, anyone in the world. That's what he did. R.C. Sproul said it this way, who is a scholar, an author, respected minister. He said, people ask me, why is God so narrow that he provided only one savior? I do not think that is the question we ought to ask. Instead, we should ask, why did God give us any way at all? In other words, why did he not just leave us? Why did God, in his grace, give to us a mediator to stand in our place, to receive the judgment we deserve, and to give to us the righteousness we desperately need? The astonishing thing is not that he did not do it in multiple ways, but that he did it even in one. R.C. Sproul is essentially saying, God didn't have to, but he did it, which demonstrates something about God. And that leads us to our second thought, that Jesus came to reveal the very face of God. The very face of God. He came to reveal who God was. Now this, this is amazing, because what Jesus actually came doing, it was he reveals, he says, listen, you see me, you see the Father. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel very good. Because that means that, what was Jesus? Jesus was loving in every way. He was. He was loving. He was merciful. He wasn't cutthroat. He, he was gentle. He was not harsh. He was gracious. He did not condemn. He, he, was, not, he was not a hateful man. He was an accepting man. He was a man who was so caring, he broke with compassion and pity with, for those around him. He was a man who was so accessible that in his day, they said, man, he's a friend of sinners. And they didn't mean it as a compliment, but he took it as one. And that is the very heart of God. That is the heart of God. Look at that. 
It's a beautiful picture, actually. Because what he shows us is that God is, is patient and slow to anger, who is loving, who will not, the scriptures say, he will not remove a reed that has been bent. He will not blow out a flame that is just barely flickering. No, he came to restore life to it. He healed the blind, literally. He said, now, now, now you can see how loving God is. God is far more amazing than you could ever imagine. How do we know it? We know it because Jesus said, I reveal him. And Jesus, boy, Jesus, you can't get better. It's hard to be more loving than he. It's hard. I, I remember when I was a student, when I was younger, teenager, I, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up with any kind of religion, really. It wasn't until my later teen years. But I remember that if, if somebody mentioned the name Mother Teresa, it caused some reverence inside of me. I didn't even know exactly what she did, but I knew she was a good person. And that's hard to find. You know, I don't think we'll find anybody that'll say, man, Mother Teresa, she was terrible. <laughs> you know, I don't think we'll find that, right? We know what an amazing life she lived to give herself to the poor and to committed love demonstrated. What an unbelievable life, rare and unique. That's why she's so celebrated. And yet, her life left a paper trail, as all of ours does, by the way. And what do we know about Mother Teresa? We know by her own admission, her own words, that she was a woman who was deeply conflicted, who battled discouragement daily, who struggled with anger and resentment, who, who at times had offenses towards God and towards people. Man, what do you got to do to offend Mother Teresa? That's bad, right? That, I mean, that's pretty good. That's a, that's a high bar. Jesus dwarfs it. There's can't get better. Here's the heart of God. He's not coming after you to condemn. He's coming after you to love, to restore, to breathe life. I'm right here. Which means, lastly, that he wasn't just the perfect picture of God. He was, he was what? He is the mold our lives were meant to be shaped into. He is the mold our lives are meant to be shaped into. Hear me, uh, sculptors, artists, perhaps they become great artists when they no longer need stencils or lines or measurements. They just, and some maybe are talented, they just do it. And that is remarkable. Most of us need some guides. Now, mold is something that I remember you use to, to create something. Otherwise, cannot, it's so difficult to create. You just pour in the clay, and it molds into it. And when it sets, it's removed. And here is this beautiful sculpture, vase, whatever it might be. That is exactly what Jesus came to. He came to, you want to see a person fully alive? Look at Jesus. You want to see what a person is supposed to be at the highest? Look at Jesus. And if we think, boy, we have to measure up to that? No. No. It's what God 
wants to mold us into. He does it if we let him. Uh, Paul said it this way in Romans 8.29. He said, and this is a message translation, God knew exactly, he knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. God does it. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. So, if we ever find ourselves asking, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Can we hear? It's actually the tender hand of the potter who is saying, let me mold you into the most beautiful person you know you're supposed to be. Let me shape you into into the courageous individual who is committed and faithful. Let me build into you. The representation of my very heart, my intention for you is to be like like this. Which means, if we fix our eyes on him, we will see what we are supposed to become. We will see where our lives are supposed to head. This is what Jesus said. Thomas said, I don't know the way. Jesus, I am the way. I'm the picture. I'm the map. My life tells you where you're headed. And this idea of fixing our eyes, it's become a little bit more important to me as of late. See, this is a year of some, some changes, for sure, in my life and in my wife and I. But, you know, some of you may be aware, I've uh, cycled through the city. I've been on a bicycle commuter for about a couple years now, more than a couple years. And it was this year that we decided, we're gonna, I'm going to go ahead and get a vehicle, you know. <laughs> Big move. And so we started talking about, you know, what kind of vehicle. And we started looking at different types of vehicles. And we ended up landing not on a four-wheeled vehicle, but on a two-wheeled vehicle. We got a motorcycle. <laughs> and my wife approved. And by we, I, I mean me, you know. <laughs> I got a motorcycle. And one of the things, and if you're concerned, I love your prayers. <laughs> I could use them. But I, I've been learning, you know this season. And one of the principles, now I am below a novice, okay? I probably shouldn't even be called one yet. But one of the principles that are taught is where your eyes go, there your bike goes. See, a car, where the wheel goes, there the vehicle goes. But a bike, where your eyes go, the body, everything else follows, the bike leans, and it goes that way. Now, you can look at other things, I'm sure, and still turn and do all that. But for a beginner such as I, that's very important. Where my eyes go, there my bike goes. Now, I remember just, you know, some time ago, finding myself on, a, on top of a hill, one of many in this city, and I need to turn left. And so I'm thinking, man, okay, I gotta focus. I'm a little nervous because I'm on a hill, and so I'm holding the brakes, and I'm just standing on the bike at the stop sign, and there's a car to my right, and there's somebody that looks, who's just standing there on the left, and I, I'm, not, I'm just not really looking at either of them, but I know there's a truck there, and I'm too nervous to like wave them, because that would mean releasing the bike. I can't do that. And so I'm sitting there, and I have a helmet on, and so I just go, I just go. And the truck gets the idea, and they, they go. So I say, okay, I don't want anyone around when I turn left. I don't want anyone around. So, so I look at the man, I, it turns out it's a male man, and I, I was like, your turn, buddy. <laughs> right? I'm sitting there and the mailman is on his route. He goes, no, man, you go. I'm like, Ugh. 
Oh, okay. So, you know, you pull the throttle and it's supposed to move forward, and so it, it does anytime it's not in neutral, which is exactly what it was in. So I pull the throttle, it's in neutral, and it just revs really nice. I'm going nowhere. And so now it's like, oh my gosh. So I place the brakes, and he goes, that sounds good, bro. <laughs> he's like, he's cheering me on, right? I'm like, no, this is not good. I just need to get out of here, right? I need to turn left. And so I put it in first, and I'm like, you know, just eking my way. I was just like, and I go, and I just like, my eyes need to not look at him, need to not look at that parked car. Don't want to end up there. And so I just make my way, and I just make my way, and I finally get onto the pegs, and I go, and I just leave. It's like, oh my gosh, that was terrible because my eyes wanted to go everywhere else. You know where they really wanted to go? They wanted to go to the embarrassment I was feeling at the time. They really did, they really did. Oh man, it was so hard not to look at that. It was hard not to imagine all the other eyes that were probably just watching, like the, everyone, hey, check this out, bro. You know, like, like that's what in my head was happening. You know, it's like, this is good, you know. You know, just to eat some popcorn. So I, I remember just feeling that way. I remember, man, my eyes wanted to go to the mailman who was, who was good intentioned and he was like celebrating. Even as I rode off, he's like, Right? It's like, not yet, bro, not yet. And I remember just feeling everything else was pulling for my attention. And that is exactly, listen, but the, where the eyes go, the bike goes. Where our eyes go, it's no exaggeration, our life goes. That is where our life goes. And it is so easy. My eyes want to go right here on my weaknesses. My eyes want to go on my lack. Some of us... My eyes, they go to the baggage I'm carrying that is like a megaphone saying, you, you think you could, you could do this? Oh, my eyes may go to perhaps, unfortunately, people I've wounded. You, really? Oh, okay. You can try that, huh? You can try that way. All right. It may be to other people who've wounded us, who don't really know the measure of their words yet, say things. And all the while, we're groping for just, just show me the way, just, just, just a step. I just want like some instruction manual. Somebody, somebody clearly has the instructions somewhere. I don't have them. And this is what Thomas was asking for. And it, can you hear Jesus say, when we find ourselves lost or confused or not really understanding everything, can you hear him saying, I am the way right here. Fix your eyes right here. I am the way, not on the people around you, not on the opinions, not on the voices within, not on the things that are challenging. I'm right here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we go there, we follow him, we step in the footprints he left behind, and what we find that this life becomes the greatest adventure we have ever imagined. That God is far better than we could ever dream. And we have one who doesn't give us a manual. He gives us himself. Today, as we make our way home, tomorrow as we go into our different environments, May he be the one we fix our eyes on. May he be the one 
that we say, Lord, let me go your way. What is your way? Great question. Let me read about your way. Let me get to know you. I will find truth and I will find life. May he be our way, our truth, the source of our life. The moment we're going to receive our time of giving, closing song, I just want to pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you, um, you care far more than sometimes we do. You care more than we fear you don't. You're better than we could imagine. You don't give us empty words. You don't give us cold manuals or rituals. You give us yourself. And so I pray, God, wherever we may be in our lives, I pray you help us fix our eyes on you and to the best of our ability, as honestly and sincerely as we can say it, I pray that you help us agree. You are the way for my life. You are the one who defines truth. You are the giver of my life. You are the way. You are the way. Help us go it. Help us learn your way. Help us love you. We receive your love. Help us become the people you've called us to be. We pray for this, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.